clearly. The um, first time that I shared my testimony publicly, it was 12 years old. I was on a summer mission trip to the Dominican Republic, or as some know it, Dominica Republicana. And um, I was there just uh, really kind of building for the summer building. I know of all people building a church and sharing the gospel of, uh, uh, um, uh, of Jesus Christ there. And I was asked along with another youth, he was older than I was, to, to come during one of the services that we were having and share our testimonies. And so, um, so he went first. Now, this guy was much older than me. He was 18 years of age. He had just graduated high school. And you, you would have been blown away by his, by his testimony. This was one of those where... You know, he had done everything possibly wrong in his life. He was addicted to drugs and to alcohol and pornography, and, and, uh, and he, had, he, had, he had really for a long time uh, been active, uh, sexually active in, 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 in all types of sexual sins. And, and then he said then just about a year before he came on this trip, somebody shared the gospel with him. He came to faith in Jesus Christ, and at that point, everything in his life changed. And now instead of living for himself, he was living for Christ, and he wanted to be obedient to God in the Great Commission. That's why he was there in the Dominican Republic sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when he got done, you can imagine all of us 12 and 13-year-old young people listening to this very explicit um, um, testimony, all with our mouths open, sitting there going, wow, now that's a testimony. And as we are all marveling about what God had done compared to what he was to was he, what he was now, um, I begin to think, why didn't I go first? Why didn't I share my somewhat boring testimony before this guy. And, uh, and I mean, I, I didn't have anything to say like he said. In a lot of ways, I, 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 I was seven when I came to faith in Christ. I wasn't doing a whole lot of drinking or drugs, I, 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 at least at the time. And, and I, wasn't, I wasn't hooked on pornography. I didn't know what pornography was at age seven. And I certainly wasn't active, you know, in some kind of, you know, sexual sin. Uh, I was still at seven taking the cootie shot, right? Circle, circle, dot, dot. Now that you got the cootie shot, you know, that, that was me. I, I didn't know anything about what he was talking about. And so I felt a little bit kind of like questioning almost of, of my conversion. And, and, and it's possible in, when we get to Acts chapter 9, when we read about the conversion of the Apostle Paul, which is probably one of the most grand, unique, amazing, miraculous conversions uh, that you could ever hear of, probably in the history of Christianity, when you hear something like this, it's easy for us to begin to kind of maybe question our own conversion experiences. And so I, I don't think, however, that that's why this is here. We always need to ask why did the author, under the leading of the Holy Spirit, place these stories here? Because this conversion experience of Paul is not only here, it happens, and in, 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 we, we hear about it two other times later in the book of Acts itself. And later, Paul himself is the one who gives his own testimony of how God had saved him and converted his soul. And so the question is, why is it here? I don't think it's for you and I to be able to feel bad. I don't think it's for us to be embarrassed of how we came to faith in Jesus Christ. And, and I also don't think that this is prescriptive. In other words, I don't think that it's written here to try to let us know that, hey, listen, if you come to faith in Jesus Christ, this is how God saves people. In other words, this is what it looks like. You've got to see a flash of light. You've got to see the resurrected Christ. You've got to have a personal, literal conversation with Jesus. If that's the case, we're all in big trouble, right? I don't think that's the case. Then the question is, why is it here? 
I think that it is here because I think that even though this is not exactly how we all came to faith in Christ, I think that there are truths here that are consistent with every single one of our conversions. That there is truth that we find here in this story that is true for every person that comes to faith in Jesus Christ. And I think there are three of them specifically. Number one, there is no one Jesus cannot save. There is no one that Jesus cannot save. What we find here, now we've been introduced to, uh, here in chapter 9, we're officially introduced to, to Paul. Let, let me say this. I'm just going to call him Paul. We know here he's Saul. Later he becomes Paul, but I'm not going to keep going back and forth. When I say Paul, you know we're talking about Saul and Saul, Paul, right? I'm so glad you guys are so in tuned with me this morning. I, I feel this is going to be a good one. And so, so the, both of them, so we're just talking about Paul. So Paul, we, we've actually heard about him on several other occasions. Back in chapter 7 was the first time. It was during the, 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 the death and stoning of Stephen, Stephen being the first Christian martyr back in chapter 7. And there in verse 58, the Bible says, Then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So there was Paul, Saul, Paul, there he was. And he was not actively throwing stones, but he was there as a spiritual leader saying, hey, I approve of what's ultimately happening here. Now, you might think that if, if, if Paul had something against Stephen or had something against Christians or Jesus, that maybe the shedding of blood of Stephen might have pacified his anger towards the Christians and he would have been fine after this, but he didn't. Instead of pacifying his rage, it only encouraged it all of the more. And so when we get to chapter 8, we find out that a full-blown move of persecution begins to uh, flow over the city of Jerusalem, sending Christians fleeing to, to Judea into Samaria. And we read in verse 3 that it's Paul that is behind all of this. Uh, we read in, in, in chapter 8 and verse 1, it says, But Saul was, or excuse me, in verse 3, it says, But Saul was ravaging the church. That Greek word ravaging is significant because it's so descriptive. It's only used one other time in the Bible in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's found in Psalm 80, verse 13, and it's used to describe a wild hog or a wild boar ravaging and destroying a vineyard. So this is, it's, it's picturing him as this like wild animal, this wild beast wanting to inflict great pain and harm on these early believers. This is the, the kind of man he was. And the Bible goes on, he says, it says that he was, but Saul was breathing threats and here in chapter 9. It says that he was, um, uh, excuse me, chapter 9, he says, but Saul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he went to the high priest and asked him for the letters to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging, belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them back to Jerusalem. So here he is, breathing threats and murder, another allusion to this panting and snorting of a wild beast. And so what we do is he's just trying to give us a description of this man's lostness, a description of a man who is completely anti-Christ because he is anti-the church. He's against Christ, he's against the church, he's doing everything he possibly can to inflict harm, and now it's not enough for him just to kill them and to imprison them, those who are in Jerusalem. Now he wants to go after those who escaped. 
And so what he does is he asks Caiaphas, most likely Caiaphas, the high priest at the time, and asks him to give him a letter and to send out a letter to all these other synagogues so that he could travel to these other synagogues in these other cities and he can track down any of these people that were a part of the way. This way was basically the title of what people begin to bring on this movement of Christ in the early church. And so what we want to do, and I think what, what Luke is trying to show us is that we are certain that this man hates Jesus and hates his people. That he was willing to seek out arrest in prison and even murder the followers, the followers of Christ in order to eradicate any mention of Jesus Christ. It's, in, in other words, it's hard to imagine someone in worse spiritual condition than he is. In fact, if, if they were to pass out little forms during the time that, he, that Luke was writing this and said, who is the least likely person you can think of that would actually become a disciple of Jesus Christ? No doubt every person would write who? The Apostle Paul, right? Who, who eventually becomes the Apostle Paul. Saul, Paul at this time. But yet Jesus, in the midst of all this, saves him. See, we've been looking and noting the supernatural power of God through the book of Acts. And the supernatural power of God kept demonstrating that the gospel would continue to go forth no matter what barrier would keep in its way. But now we're seeing a different side of the supernatural power of God. Not only can he get the gospel to spread throughout the entire known world, but he also has to the power to be able to save those that normally all of us believe would be unsavable. There is no person that God cannot save. And so when we read that, I think the difficulty of that truth is that most of us are just going to sit back and just nod our heads to that point, and in, in which we should, and I appreciate it because it means that you're listening. But I think it's so easy to biblically and theologically go, that's right, no doubt, Jesus can save anybody. But we begin to struggle when it becomes the practicality of that in, in every day. In other words, see if this has been the case for you. As I've been working through the book of Acts, I've been convicted about sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Any of you? All right, two of us. It's working. It's doing exactly as I had planned. <laughs> and um, so, so and, and not just convicted, but encouraged to be able to go and to be able to take the gospel and understand that this is my role as a believer in Jesus Christ. But unknowingly, maybe you've done the same, is I have a tendency to be able to put people in different categories of more likely to accept Christ and less likely to accept Christ. Do you do that with your friends and families? Usually the ones that are more likely are the ones that, that, that are nicer. <laughs> they, they, they talk to you and they're, they're friendly to you and they, they have nice families and they're a part of the community. And you look to them and you begin to think to yourself, now they're the types that I think are really open to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they don't drink too much. They don't swear too much. Just a little bit, but they're lost. We can expect that. And then there's a whole other group where you're sitting there going, yeah, there's no way that they're getting saved with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And sometimes that has to do with, with people just simply because of the way they live and the type of sin that they're involved in, openly in, involved in. Sometimes it has to do with people that we've tried to share the gospel with before, but so much time has gone by and they haven't gotten any closer to faith in Christ. They seem to be getting further away. And those people are classified as people most unlikely to be saved. And so we want to focus on those that seem to be more likely, that seem to be not quite as sinful and yet the word of God keeps coming back and saying in the eyes of Jesus Christ, such categories does not exist. There is nobody too sinful, too awful that Jesus Christ cannot save. And, and so there, when we live that, whether we believe it theologically, but when we believe it because it's demonstrated in the way we approach people with the gospel, who we will or who we won't, 
it, it demonstrates two problems. Number one is we believe that Jesus is weak, that he doesn't have the power to save. And what I would do is I would encourage you, maybe we haven't made this connection, go back and read the entire Old Testament. What is it about? God saving his people over and over and over again in the most extreme and the most impossible situations. Go back to the whole God leading people, his people out of the Exodus, and God performs miracle after miracle after miracle until he opens up the Red Sea. The people go through. He crashes it down on their enemies. What's the point of the story? God is mighty to save even in the most impossible situations. I love this story. I love this story in 2 Kings chapter 3 and verse 18. Uh, 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 Israel, the king of Israel, decides that he's going to go and they're going to fight against the Moabites. And they take all their army and they travel seven days out into the middle of a desert. And they get to the middle of the desert. They completely run out of water. And they realize that in, in the stream, it's all dried up where they were planning on getting water. And at this point, they're too far on this trip to go back and in the Moab is too far ahead for them to be able to reach it, to be able to get any water. They realize that they're going to die. And so they say, what can we do? We're in a possibility. There's no rain. There's no water. There's no rain in the streams, no lakes. And finally, they call on the man of God of Elisha. And Elisha comes to him. And I love this. Second Kings chapter three, verse eight. Mark that down. Here's what he basically says. He says, by tomorrow, he goes, there will be no rain. No rain is going to come, but this stream is going to be filled with water. Then he says, this is a small thing for God. He's going to do the impossible, and once again, he's going to do as he always does. In the face of the impossible, he is going to save his people. This is a small thing for God. And you might be here this morning. You might be thinking about those who are around you, and God is placed in your life. It might be you yourself who has been coming and think that you are beyond the grace and the mercy of God even saving you is a small thing for the power of God. And let me say this. The problem of thinking this way is not only demeaning in God's power, but it is also belittling your and I condition. When you and I sit back and we think that there are some people that are just too far gone to be saved, what does that say about how we view ourselves and our own sinfulness? What it means is that you and I, somehow, God was able to save us because we weren't nearly as lost as they were. We weren't nearly as sinful as they were. Somehow, we were better off, more uh, morally astute, better people, more righteous. That's why God was be able to save us and not somebody else. I, I want to, just so that we know we're all on the same page, and I realize this may not be the feel-good message of the year, but let me just tell you this. When God saved you, he reached down and scraped the bottom of the barrel of sin to be able to save you and to pluck you out. You weren't on the top. You weren't floating on the top. He didn't reach low. He reached way, way down. And here's the bottom line. If he can save you and me, he can save every other soul in this world. There is not one person that Jesus Christ cannot save. Amen? Number two, there is no one saved that has not come face to face with Jesus. There is no one who has been saved that has not come face to face with Jesus. This is precisely what happened to Paul in a very physical, very literal way. If you look in verse 3, uh, when Paul was making his way to Damascus, the Bible says suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Later, he explains that it was in the mid part of day. So it wasn't the sun, S-U-N. It was the brightness of the glory of God of his son, S-O-N, 
that begin to appear. And he says, in falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter in the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand, and they brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now, I think what you have to understand here is in this conversion story is you have to remember how Paul viewed Jesus before this event. And how he viewed Jesus at, before this event, at best, he was a nuisance. At worst, he was completely and utterly unnecessary. And the reason he viewed Jesus in that way is because he had a false view of himself. And the way that he viewed himself, he was puffed up with pride. He thought that he himself was a righteous man. He thought that he was good. When people begin to share the gospel and say, you need to repent and believe in Christ because he died for your sins, he's sitting back going, what sins? I'm, I'm sorry that he gave his life, but don't tell me he's got to die for me because I'm a righteous man. There, I don't have enough sin for him ultimately to be able to die for. So he's full of himself, full of pride, full of self-righteousness. But here, when he came faith face to face with Jesus Christ, that, complete, that whole paradigm switched. Now he sees Jesus Christ as infinitely greater than him, and he sees himself as infinitely worse than what he once believed. This is the position that God takes everybody, right? When they come face to face in Christ. You ever notice this, that people profess, hey, I died, went to heaven, saw Jesus. And what do they do? They're, they're walking around with t-shirts that say, Jesus is my homeboy. Jesus is my homeboy, man. I saw him. Other people, hey, he's a big man in the sky. That's, that, that's, not, that's not people, that's not the response of people who actually come in the presence and come face to face with God. They don't they, they don't begin to publish books and travel around and do book signings and on TV shows. Instead, what we find is that they are always humbled and they're always brought to their knees when they recognize the Lord Jesus Christ for who he is. We see this played out in the Old Testament. We see it with Isaiah. When Isaiah, when he gets a glimpse of God, hears his voice, he says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. In the New Testament, when Peter senses that Jesus is, in fact, God, it's at the point where he's been fishing all night and they haven't been able to catch anything. And, and Jesus says, hey, cast, the, cast them out of the boat. And they cast them. And then they bring in all these fish, so many that it begins to sink the ship. And at this point, he realizes that he's the Christ. And he says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Now here's Paul traveling literally on his high horse from Jerusalem to Damascus thinking that Jesus is nothing and he is everything, he gets a glimpse of Jesus Christ. And what does he do? He's completely humble. And he recognizes God, for the, Jesus, for the very first time as Lord. And it is at that moment that everything changes. He is no longer living for himself. He is now living for Christ and the person of Jesus Christ. You know, many times, perhaps... Perhaps this is the reason why, or perhaps this is the reason why that some people, or, or, or that, that Jesus is always on his lips. Uh, here, here's what I would say. Listen to people's testimonies and how they share their testimonies. Just listen to how they talk about church. 
Uh, one, one author said this, it says, one preacher said, salvation is never merely about wanting to live a better life. It's never about wanting to be a better parent or husband or about bringing up your children in the church. It's never merely a religious experience where you felt a warm sensation and a peace. Salvation is about coming face to face with Jesus. And sometimes the way I think that we can recognize this is what kind of words are we using every day? When we talk about our salvation, when we talk about what Christ did inside of us, is Jesus' name ever present? It was for the Apostle Paul. When somebody comes and asks Paul, says, hey man, what is the meaning of life? He says to him, he, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. When somebody comes to him and says, hey man, listen, you, you are losing everything because you're pursuit of Jesus Christ. How do you manage all the difficulties in life? He doesn't sit back and go, I'm just praying that God's going to give me more. What does he say? He says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And so maybe some of you are sitting here and I've heard people say this. They're like, why are people always talking about Jesus? I'm born again and I'm not talking about Jesus. Maybe it's because you've never come face to face with him. Maybe you've never come face to face with him. Maybe you've never recognized him and his glory and his holiness and come to the point to where you realize he's holy, you are not, and your need is to submit to him. That's what it looks like when you come face to face. And even though we don't come to face in a literal physical way, in a very spiritual way, we see Jesus as though we've never seen him before. That is true for every person who is converted in Jesus Christ. There's a third thing that we see here in the word of God. And that is that there is no one saved that has not been changed by Christ. There is no one who was ever saved by Jesus that is not also changed by Jesus Christ. You know, beginning in verse 10, we're introduced to this man by the name of Ananias. Different Ananias before. Uh, Ananias comes, he, he, he lives uh, there in Damascus, and he's a disciple of Christ. And he has this vision. And in this vision, he sees Jesus. Jesus basically says, hey, I want you to go to Straight Street. I want you to go down to Straight Street, and this is a very specific uh, vision, by the way. Go down to Straight Street. There, there's a man that lives there by the name of Judas. Again, not the same Judas that before, very common name. And he says, and in his house is a man by the name of Saul, who is from Tarsus. And he says, I want you to go there. I want you to lay hands on him, and I want you to heal him. But he's blind to restore his sight and to lay upon him so that he receives the Holy Spirit. Well, this is all great, but Ananias knows who this Saul is. And so he says to him in verse 13, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, so here's in essence what he's saying. When he goes, he has authority to lay hands on anybody who is called by your name. I'm called by your name. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. If I go to him, He's either going to arrest me, ship me back to Jerusalem, or he's going to kill me on the spot. I don't want to go. And Jesus says to him, he says, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of, of Israel. Jesus wasn't concerned at all with how Saul was going to accept Ananias. Why? Because he knows that he had changed him. Here was a man that was persecuting the church. Here was a man that wanted to put the church to death, wanted to do harm to all of God's people and to Christ if he can get his hands on them. But when he gets there, he sends him because he knows that this man has been radically changed from the inside out. And so he sends him to him. 
And we find out that when he goes in and he lays hands on him and, and he does receive the spirit and then he's baptized, the Bible says a little bit later in verse 19, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And the people who knew Paul were amazed. And some said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose and to bring them bound before the chief priest? Do you see this? The, the, the reason they know this man has been born again is because of the change in his life. It has nothing to do really with his experience on the road. It has to do with, has this man been changed? And that's how we know. Why is that so important? Well, because there are many, just follow with me. We're, we're kind of, we're, we're about to land. Okay, now don't pack up, but we're about to land, which means we have 17 more minutes, but we're about to land and, and, and here's, here's, here's the, the culture that I grew up in. And I want to be very careful with the way that I state this because I never want to come across as, as, as disrespectful to the generation before me or the generation that poured in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm just as guilty of this, but this is one of those unfortunate things sometimes you can look back. And, and I grew up in a culture that puts such an emphasis on the date time and hour that you came to faith in Jesus Christ. That if you didn't know the time, date, or hour that you came to faith in Jesus Christ, you were in essence told that you might very well not be in the faith at all. And I remember many people in my life going, I don't remember a date, time, or hour. I don't remember exactly what ultimately had happened. And the reason for that, and I want you to hear this, not everybody who is converted is converted in the same manner as the Apostle Paul. Sometimes I have seen people fall on their knees, cry out to God, cry for mercy unto God. And for some people, it has been ever so subtle. So subtle that they can't even remember exactly what day it was or week it was. All they know is once they were blind and now they see. Sometimes I begin to work with them. And they go, I don't know. There was just this summer and it was all different. See, here's what the Bible does promise. It doesn't promise you this incredible conversion experience, but it does promise you this incredible transformation. And let me be careful with explaining that as well. The Bible teaches us that all who are saved are changed. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Or as he states in 2 Corinthians 3, 18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. All of our conversion experiences were probably very much different, some very grand, some very subtle, but the one thing we know is everybody who has been born again is changed in the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. Now, when I was, it, you have to kind of work through that a little bit, because I was told when I came to faith in Christ, this well-meaning deacon told me, he goes, bro, I just want to let you know, when you wake up tomorrow, everything has changed. Everything has changed. Now, don't tell a seven-year-old that because he doesn't know what in the world that means, right? And I'm like, am I still going to be a boy? <laughs> am I? He said everything. Am I still going to have the same parents? What's going to happen, you know? So I woke up the next morning. I remember having a hard time falling asleep, and I woke up the next morning, and I was in my own bed. I was wearing my, the same Spider-Man pajamas. I remember very clearly. <laughs> remember very clearly Spider-Man pajamas. I got up, and I went, and and I'm, I'm looking for something that is going to be different. And I go to the pantry, and, and, and sure enough, disappointingly, there are my fruit rings for breakfast. Not fruit loops, fruit rings. And I was praying that that was going to be the change, that I was actually going to get 
that type of fruit rings. Nothing had changed. And I remember going around and kind of being a little bit disappointed, going, I, I looked in the mirror. I looked the same. I, I didn't really feel much different. But here's what I began to notice, even at a young age, and sometimes it's a little bit more subtle, because I, I wasn't perverse in the way that we would talk about perverse, just as sinful as anybody else, but I hadn't had enough time to be perverse and to act on every possible sinful inclination. I was seven years old. But one thing that I did begin to see is that there was a change. And the change in me was that for whatever reason, I now wanted to hear the word of God. I, I, I wanted to actually be in church, hearing in, in, with God's people. I now not just felt guilty about the things that I did, but now I, I didn't want to do those things that I once did. I no longer just did things as they were right in my own eyes. Now I wanted to actually know and begin to ask people the question, what would Jesus have me do? Those are those subtle shifts. Like the whole trajectory of your life begins to change because it's no longer me about me and me pursuing my stuff, but it, now it's about Christ and me pursuing the person of Jesus Christ. There was no flash of light. There was no appearance of Jesus Christ. When I gave my, faith, my, my, my life to Christ to the best I know, it was, it, was, it was the back room of a broken down trailer next to a bed that was really high, and I put my face right in the side of it. I prayed a prayer and got up and went out and started riding my bike down the street to go and play with Daryl Mayo. There was nothing amazing about it. Sometimes people do have those incredible conversion experiences. But the emphasis should not be on what happened on that day. The emphasis should be of what happened after that day. Was there growth? Was there transformation? Was there hunger that you've never had before? Was there a desire to do the right thing? Was there a desire to be able to please Jesus Christ? That is what is same, the same for every person who is converted to the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now here's where we are. I'm going to ask Nick to come. Here's just a couple things. Number one, we have to deal with those points in a practical way. Number one is there is nobody so sinful that God cannot save. Maybe that's you. Maybe, maybe you sit there and go, man, I've tried this again. I've tried to put my stuff together. I've tried to get my stuff together and try to be a good person. It is not about being a good person. It's you sitting there going, I am not a good person. And I relent and I come to you and go, I can't do it anymore. And you come to him and you just accept his grace and his mercy. And for some of you, you just need to be encouraged today. If the person that you're praying for has not passed away. God can save them. God can save them, just like he can save you. And number two, face-to-face. -face. I know that you've experienced religion. I know that you've come and you've been part of the church, and I know you've tried to turn over a new leaf, and I know that you're coming to Christ because you want to be a better dad and all this, but if you come face-to-face -face to, with Jesus Christ to a point that you realize that he is holy and that you are not. And this third thing is, have you changed? Have you been changed? I'm not so concerned about how magnificent or how small it was on the day of your conversion. I am concerned about what has happened since then. Are there any inclination of hunger for God? Is there any inclination that you're no longer living for yourself, but you're living for him? And that you see this progressive sanctification occurring in your life over and over and over again? If not, call out to him. Call out to him and say, save me, Jesus, where I am. 
If you see it, yet you struggle, then praise God because only Jesus could have brought that change about in you. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We thank you. I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this word. God, would you move? Would you work? As we come right now, we begin to all reflect on, on the moment or the time or the season that we came to faith in you. Will today be a day of rejoicing? Will today be a day of faith? Will today be a day that some would sit back and go, I've never been born again. May today be that day of salvation. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together. I'm going to be down here, and I'm going to, you respond. If you want prayer, you come. If you want to talk, you come. If you've got questions, we're going to get a counsel with you to be able to work through that. But you respond to the preaching of God's word.